I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the LRB Podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. The subject of this week's episode is the so-called Great Replacement, a racist conspiracy theory that non-white individuals are flooding Western countries in a sinister effort to remake their values, their politics, and ultimately their very demographic composition. Replacement theory was invoked by the man who killed 51 people in attacks at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. It was also cited by the shooter at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and by the 18-year-old man who shot 13 people dead at a supermarket in Buffalo last month. What's more, the idea of the Great Replacement has in recent years migrated from the fringes of the right-wing dark web to the political mainstream. It was promoted by Marine Le Pen, Eric Zemmour, and Valérie Pécresse in France's recent national elections. It has become a mantra of Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, and by numerous Republican politicians close to Donald Trump. According to recent surveys, half of Republican voters believe in the Great Replacement. Since the United Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, where marchers chanted, you will not replace us, it's become a catch-all phrase for a set of existential fears on the white supremacist right, and to some extent on the center right as well. Fears of immigration, of Muslims and blacks, of Jewish philanthropists like George Soros, of white extinction, critical race theory, cultural Marxism, Islamo-leftism, and Eurabia. What are the origins of this idea, and how did it spread so effectively? Why has it acquired such terrifying appeal in recent years? To answer these questions, we've invited two of the leading experts on the far right, Reza Zia-Ebrahimi and Sindra Bangstad. Reza is a historian at King's College and the author of Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and Entangled History, published by Edition Amsterdam in 2021. Sindra Bangstad is a social anthropologist in Norway and the author of Anders Breivik and the Rise of Islamophobia, published by Zed Books in 2014. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having thank us. I'd like to start by asking a question of Reza about the origins of the term the Great Replacement. The man who coined it is a French writer, Renaud Camus, who first came to prominence as the author of a book about cruising tricks, which had a foreword by Roland Barthes. Can you tell us a bit about who Camus is and about his idea of the Great Replacement? Renaud Camus is a French novelist and a gay icon who has been active since uh, the 1970s. A quite central character in uh, the French intelligentsia. A very prolific uh, novelist. And uh, he has become far better known abroad since he published Le Grand Remplacement, or uh, The Great Replacement, in 2011. Which is not exactly a book, it's just a series of transcribed uh, talks that he has given, with a lot of overlaps, in fact. The idea itself is quite simple, and I think that this is where its strength resides. The idea is that non-white immigrants are colonizers, and that they are coming, uh, responding to a subterraneous conspiracy, as it were, to exterminate us, to replace us. He refers to genocide by uh, substitution. This idea has found great resonance, uh, as we now know. In, uh, in France, obviously, three among the top four presidential candidates uh, this year referred to the Great Replacement Theory. A poll last year uh, showed that a poll by Harris Interactive 2021 showed that 67% of the French were worried uh, at some level 
about the Great Replacement. And as you know, it's also had quite a career in the United States among neo-Nazis and white supremacists, including the terrorists among them. Uh, Sindra, in your book about Anders Bering Breivik, Renaud Camus is not mentioned, but it's clear that Breivik was profoundly influenced by similar ideas. One of the thinkers uh, you describe is a man named Peter Arenosvold Jensen, a blogger who wrote under the name uh, Fjordman. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, I think it bears mentioning here that uh, Breivik's terrorist attack occurred in 2011, which, as it happens, is prior, I think, to, to Camille introducing this particular term, the Great uh, Replacement. But obviously, as anyone familiar with, with these tropes uh, about, you know, the which are really long-standing historical tropes about the de- decline of Western civilization and, and the existential threat from non-white immigrants. Th- these are really, you know, uh, long-standing tropes in racist and far-right milieus in Europe as well as in the US. Um, I mean, think of a figure like, uh, you know, one of the preeminent white supremacists in, in U.S. history, Madison Grant, the author of The Passing of the Great Race. A book that's actually mentioned in uh, The Great Gatsby. Mm. So th- these are not new ideas. These are by no means new new tropes for, in, in the case of Breivik, who committed uh, the worst terrorist attack in, in modern Norwegian history in 2011, the motivating sort of ideas came from so-called Eurabia literature, or in other words, the uh, far-right conspiratorial uh, theory that, that Muslims in particular are working in tandem with uh, liberal and so-called multiculturalist elites in Western societies in order to for, for Muslims to take over uh, these very societies. Now, the main exponent of the of Eurabia theory is a woman who was uh, born in 1933 uh, in Egypt, uh, a Jewish woman, Giselle Litman, uh, who writes under the name uh, Bat Yor. Can you tell us a bit about uh, about Giselle Litman or, or Bat Yor, who figures also in Reza's book? Yeah, I mean, a very fascinating character, I have to say. I mean, born in... Uh, Zamalek, uh, Cairo, uh, into uh, an uh, Egyptian Jewish family uh, of Italian descent, I believe. She left Egypt together with a family, born in 1933, after the uh, sort of um, the military coup which brought Nasser uh, to power in Egypt. And she married uh, this British historian. David Littman, who also worked for a number of years for uh, Jewish organizations in, in Geneva, Switzerland, right? Um, and she's by and large an autodidact, right? So did university studies, but, but, but never, you know, had an academic career. But she takes up this idea that the Muslims are coming, as it were, right? And that their aim is to reduce other people to the condition of what she calls demitude. Which basically means minority status, right? Uh, governed by Muslims under Islamic law, right? So, and, and the motivating idea here, I think, is, uh, is also the, the fear of minoritization, right? Or what the anthropologist Ayun Apadurai in, in an excellent book uh, some years ago referred to as the fear of small numbers, right? And if you look at these cut-and-paste tracts that have been produced by a number of these mass shooters and right-wing extremist terrorists, this very fear of becoming a minority, or to put it in, in, in popular terms, being a, in the minority sucks, right? So you should never get there, right? And, and obviously, you know, demographic changes in the US as well as in Europe have been quite real, right? And, and noticeable, right? But the idea here in, in a lot of right-wing extremist tracts is, of course, that being in minority means that you are dominated, which is problematic because, uh, you know, what we're seeing is a pluralization, a demogra- demographic pluralization, right? 
but but it's really about the fear of of losing white privileges, uh, losing white supremacy, uh, and for people who conceive of themselves as being white uh, uh, as as losing power, you know, in political, social, and economic terms. Right. This is what they fear. I mean, I think a number of people were were misled by Breivik's uh, target. He he attacked. Uh, a group of, of young leftists at a, a kind of socialist summer camp uh, who were mostly white. But your, your book reminds us that an intense racism uh, informed uh, his outlook. And uh, in uh, Breivik's ideology, but also in the ideology or, or um, hallucinations of some of the recent uh, killers, re- replacement appears to be invariably uh, triangular. You have uh, the people who are, you know, the whites, who are threatened by replacement, which is in, in, invariably embodied by some group of racialized uh, others. But in order for this uh, nefarious plot to take place, another group has to be pulling the strings. Liberal politicians, George Soros, the Jews, there's always this third party, right? Yeah. And if, if we look at Breivik, say, uh, the, the idea here was that by attacking young social democrats, because his, his victims were mostly... You know, teenagers attending uh, um, a Labour Party youth conference on, on an island 60 kilometers away from, from Oslo. And the idea here is that you don't necessarily target the population or, or you know, the racialized minority that you consider um, as invaders. You target those that you perceive uh, to have acted historically as their enablers, right? In this case, Norwegian Social Democrats. So- right, the, the Social Democrats, the liberal elites in the United States, the people who are changing curriculums uh, in the United States and imposing critical race theory, so to speak. Um, I mean, it's a it's a trope that we see repeated in different forms in different national contexts. Um, I want to get back to um, later uh, to the question of why these ideas have uh, acquired such force in uh, recent years, especially the last few years. Uh, but first, I want to backtrack a bit to the origins um, of uh, replacement theory or the idea of replacement, which which um, uh, strike me as being rooted in apocalyptic fiction. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about Renaud Camus. We could also talk, of course, about uh, the, the 1973 novel by Jean Raspail, uh, The Camp of Saints, which um, had a great influence on Marine Le Pen and, and, uh, and Steve Bannon. We could talk about Michel Welbeck's uh, submission. But as Reza argues very effectively uh, in his book, the idea of replacement goes back to 19th century fictions like uh, The Black Invasion, uh, a four-volume work published in 1894 by a French military officer, uh, Émile Drian, who wrote under the pseudonym Capitaine Danrit, which warned of a future invasion of Europe by the Muslim masses of Africa led by a fanatical sultan. Uh, Reza, can you tell us a bit about the emergence of such fictions and their, uh, their, their, their context in, in French expansion of the 19th century? Yes, certainly. The context is uh, the high tide of colonialism. And the realization by a great many observers in France and elsewhere in the West that there is a a demographic issue that threatens white supremacy, and that is that fertility rates are declining in Western Europe while they remain quite high in the colonies. And this creates very deep anxieties about the, the, the possibility to sustain white supremacy as, as they know it at the time. And these anxieties are manifested in various forms in the arts and in political pamphleteering, uh, as you can imagine. And the novel that you just mentioned, uh, which is a, a novel of anticipation, as we say in French, which is some sort of like, you know, uh, uh, some sort of uh, apocalyptic science fiction, uh, uh, if you will, is a very clear expression of those, of those fears. The Black Invasion, under the lead of a Muslim leader, takes place entirely thanks to the much larger numbers of, of said Africans and, and Muslims. 
The book is uh, uh, also very much indebted to very common Orientalist and racist and Islamophobic ideas of the time. And uh, I think that its success says something about the fears of, of that period, about a possible takeover by those that we have colonized and who might one day, thanks to their greater numbers, take their revenge. I think that this theme remains under the skin of the, particularly the French intelligentsia. And uh, one of the most prominent uh, examples of it in the 20th century is the one you mentioned, The Camp of the Saints, published by the French uh, novelist Jean Raspail in 1973. It's, a, it's very interesting in many ways, both for its extreme dehumanization of non-white people and also for its uh, uh, sheer success, which, which says something about the racial structuring of our societies and the institutional support that this type of theories uh, enjoy. So what, what really struck me in The Camp of the Saints, which, by the way, there is a cult around this novel, in particularly American neo-Nazi and white supremacist circles. What really struck me is that very often if you want to there are several ways of dehumanizing your racial other. You can subhumanize them. You know, they are still human, but, you know, we are superior. You can animalize them in sort of like, you know, more, uh, how should I put it, discursively violent uh, tropes. You know, they are vermin. They are, they are like animals. They are like dogs, etc. What Jean Raspail does goes even further than that. He scatologizes them. Sorry for the neologism. I, I, I like to believe that I that I that I invented it, but maybe maybe I didn't. Essentially, he equates the masses of non-white people with human feces, and you know I don't think I've ever come across something as discursively violent as that. And that is saying something because obviously every day of my life, I have to read you know, Mein Kampf or, 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 or the writings of Chamberlain or, or, or whatnot. I, I do that for a, for a, for a living. So he, he, he describes these one million migrants that are on a number of ships headed for France. And he describes them as a shapeless mass, uh, as a shapeless a piece of flesh, as it were, you know, fidgeting like, like, like ants, like vermin, howling, copulating with itself, defecating on itself, which is, which is, which is uh, uh, quite violent. And it is suggested that this mass is going to invade us and take over our societies. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, with the complicity of the left, the internationalists, uh, uh, sections of the church, and, and so on and so forth. A second thing that I find extremely interesting in Jean Raspail, and I do believe that this has been quite influential on Renaud Camus, is that he dismisses any form of human empathy for non-white people. In fact, in the novel, he pours scorn on anyone who could feel empathy, even for their children. And the characters that are made into the heroes of the novel are those that are unencumbered by such feelings and that exterminate them. They are actually the saints. Uh, the camp of the saints is the place where they retreat at the end of the novel. And this is, this is quite interesting. You would, think, you would think that such violent racism in a novel surely would condemn it to, to the dustbin of history. Well, in fact, not at all. Uh, he's been praised time and again as a prophet, as a visionary, just like Renaud Camus to some extent. Uh, he has received a number of very prestigious uh, French literary prizes. He's been translated in a number of languages. As I mentioned earlier, he's particularly, particularly successful in the United States. Uh, his readers include uh, former President Trump and Steve Bannon, as you mentioned, but also Marine Le Pen and others. His uh, publisher is the most mainstream of uh, French publishers, uh, Robert Laffont. And uh, uh, he has been time and again invited to French uh, debates on the television and on the radio. So what I'm trying to get at is that we are very far from sort of fringe not cases. We're talking about people that are part and parcel of the mainstream on both sides of uh, the Atlantic. And I think that Renaud Camus is also 
also represents this sort of this sort of uh, elite, if uh, if you may call it so. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, that uh, camp of camp of the saints was 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 read widely uh, outside of France, and I think. Um, you know, one of the notable features of of re- replacement theory is the uh, the spread of the idea across the borders of France, and as a which to me is a, a symptom of the uh, the internationalization of the far right. Uh, that that in fact is a subject very much of of Sindra's book. You know, the the far right is a movement known for its defense of national identity of sovereignism. But as we've seen in recent years, the great replacement theory um, has shown itself to be remarkably supple and, and to uh, insert itself into any number uh, of national contexts, from France to the Netherlands uh, to the United States. In fact, one could argue that the fear of being replaced uh, long predates uh, any such theory, that uh, you could argue that the colonization movement in 19th century America, which advocated deporting black people to Liberia and other parts of Africa, uh, reflected similar anxieties about replacement, about uh, the inassimilability of, of, of black people and their threat to the values and demographic white purity of America. Is this the reason, in your view, uh, Sindra and Reza, that replacement theory um, has been so successful, that it can be just adopted by any country where uh, the defense of the white race ha- has become so central? I think there are two things that deserve some scholarly attention here. On the one hand, there is the globalization of far-right ideas, and I think you're absolutely right. What we have seen in recent years is the rise of a global network of echo chambers uh, that reproduce the same ideas. So I have done some research on Islamophobia denial, for instance. The denial of Islamophobia is uh, something that we find across the board globally. However, there is a very specific set of arguments that are used time and again, and they originate, in my view, in the French polemics uh, of the term uh, Islamophobia. And this has been internationalized through the said uh, network of uh, echo chambers. So it's very interesting indeed, and very clearly people build alliances across the border, even though they consider themselves uh, essentially nationalists. And that is something remarkable. But I wonder whether it's as new. Reza, before you go on, can you explain what you mean by the denial of Islamophobia? What, what, what is that, the denial of Islamophobia? It's very simple. It's the argument that you are confronted to time and again every time you invoke Islamophobia, whereby uh, there is no such thing, that uh, the term specifically, the invocation of Islamophobia, is a uh, conspiracy by Islamists and jihadists to silence legitimate criticism uh, of Islam. I think you suggest in, in your book that the denial of Islamophobia is actually quite similar rhetorically to the denial of anti-Semitism uh, in the 19th century when it was argued that, that uh, by anti-Semites that they were not opposed to Jewish people, merely to Judaism as a religion. It's, it's partly that. I think that the denial of racism is a much broader, generally, I mean, uh, and, and as part of racism, as inclu- I include both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. I think that the denial of racism is one of the covert... Uh, ways that we have which structurally maintain inequalities uh, uh, into place. And that can manifest itself in a number of ways. I mean, you mentioned earlier the the accusations leveled at critical race theorists, that this is an ideology that is divisive and so on. All of this is part of a very well-established practice of denying the very existence of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and so on. What I uh, refer to in regards to 19th century anti-Semitism is something related but slightly different, which is the idea of Judaization, uh, Verjudung, uh, which you find among a number of uh, 19th century German anti-Semites, such as uh, Richard Wagner, for instance, and, and others. There is the belief that there is something called the Jewish spirit, the Jewish geist, which is about to contaminate, if you will, the German nation and its ethnic and cultural purity, and that it can operate uh, without Jews. 
So for instance, there's an anti-Semite, I'm blanking on his name, I mentioned him in my book, that claims that if we were to remove all our Jews, it would not solve our problem because we have become Judaized. And what they mean by that is uh, uh, essentially, you know, the, the, the unstoppable march of modernity, of capitalism, of the industrial society, uh, of liberalism, and so on and so forth. And this sort of rhetorical device allowed people like Wagner to claim that they had nothing against Jews. You know, they were rabid anti-Semites, but they could claim that they had nothing about Jews, that what they cared about was that geist, that, that Jewish spirit, which is contaminating, polluting the German nation. Very similarly today, you have a very, very similar, uh, almost identical discourse that you can find, for instance, in the mouth of Gert Wilders, the Dutch far-right politician who has time and again said, I'm not a racist. I don't have anything against Muslims. What I care about is this ideology, this totalitarian ideology, which is uh, Islam, uh, which is taking over our continent and our civilization. And he compares the Quran with Mein Kampf. So you have, you have your right, a way to, 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 to sort of like shun the discussion about racism by claiming that you know, their target is not actual people, but uh, sort of like abstract ideology, as it were. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. I think, Sindra, in, in your book, uh, you've suggested that many formerly liberal elites in Norway converted to a rather virulent Islamophobia by arguing that they didn't want to refight the battles of the 1960s, that somehow the cultural freedoms that they'd won in, in Norway were threatened by Muslim immigrants. Yeah, but I think it's important here also to, to take into account national context, right? In Norway, uh, what... Um, uh, Muslims, as it were, a small minority in Norway, were seen in in the decade leading up uh, to the Breivik attacks, uh, were seen as, as as posing a threat to, by even mainstream liberals, uh, uh, was of course, you know, historical traditions relating to gender equality, the welfare state, and so forth, right? So the mainstream attraction of some of these ideas uh, should also interest us if we are to avoid the very idea that these are, you know, exceptional fringe uh, ideas. And I think, you know, that has to uh, be part of the analysis of why these rhetorical tropes, the trope of the Great Replacement, has seen such successes across national contexts, right? Because it speaks to profound uh, anxieties which are not, you know, exclusive to uh, the far uh, and extreme right. And we also have to take into account the importance of social media here. There's an interesting study by Jacob Davey and Julia Erbner undertaken for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue about the ways in which the idea of the Great Replacement gained traction. Um, so they start analysing data, social media data, in the period 2012 to 2019, and they find that in that particular period, 50% uh, of, of posts relating to the Great Replacement uh, came out of France, right? So uh, the author, Renaud Camille, who coined the term, uh, his Twitter account plays an enormous role in popularizing the term. But what we've seen in, in recent years, and particularly after the Christchurch massacre, uh, when an Australian right-wing extremist massacred 50-plus mosques in, in two uh, mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, during uh, Friday congregational prayers, is that this has become a global phenomenon and increasingly, you know, gained traction in the English-speaking world. Now, uh, Sindra, you know, what strikes me about the, uh, the aftermath of these attacks... Uh, such as the the massacre in Buffalo, is that 
on the one hand, they attest to the spread and the lethal nature of the, the ideas that we're discussing, the, very th- the, the real threat that they pose to you know, the well-being of our citizens. And yet, on the other hand, they are used by the right to dismiss the threat and to imply that they are simply the product of, quote-unquote, diseased minds, as uh, Tucker Carlson uh, put it recently. This was also true with the, the massacre by Anders Breivik. The claim was that uh, he was not a violent terrorist fanatic. He was just a crazy lone individual. This is a response that one very seldom sees when the killer in question uh, is a Muslim. No, precisely. Um, and I mean, that was uh, one of the point, points made in my book um, uh, about the uh, the Breivik affair in, in Norway was precisely that we're still in a situation in which there is a widespread tendency to think of right-wing extremists uh, and, and white right-wing extremists as uh, sort of socially and psychologically disturbed individuals whose actions have no bearing upon uh, society at large, whereas um, terrorists of Muslim background tend to be cast as acting upon impulses within, uh, you know, their their cultural re- religion. In other words, uh, and, and and being perfectly rational, right? which is of course, you know, a long-standing problem also in 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 the media coverage of terrorist incidents like this. And I think you know. I don't think, you know, violence within Western societies will, you know, mysteriously disappear uh, anyhow. But I do think, you know, thinking about these phenomenon, phenomena in tandem uh, would at least go some way towards, you know. Well, I mean, it seems to me to be your suggestion, Sindra, that the perpetrators of these crimes can be at one and the same time mentally unstable and also uh, driven by political ideology. I mean, you write, it's entirely possible to be a lone madman, yet act out ideological fantasies of purity and existential danger, which are, in fact, far more mainstream. Uh, Reza, I saw that you wanted to step in. Yeah, so, I mean, just to to, to bounce back on what you were saying, I think that the uh, mainstream politicians, uh, you know, liberal, right, far right, uh, persuasion, uh, have have an incentive to portray these individuals as lone wolves, as deranged minds, and so on, because they are aware of their own contribution to the ideological ground that has informed this killing, because these people have been, for the better part of the last 20 years, raising the alarm bell about the dangers of Muslim immigration and the danger that it poses to our very civilization, if not uh, uh, our culture and our uh, uh, economies and so on. Um, but what I find very interesting as well is the reaction of the ideologues themselves. And uh, Renaud Camus uh, himself, for instance, every time there is a killing in the name of uh, the Great uh, Replacement, generally without showing a whisker of emotion, he dismisses the claim that he has anything to do with those killings by claiming that he's nonviolent. And so this is something that I, I would like to, to question, to deeply question. Can you claim that you're nonviolent when you are telling your readership that essentially they are being exterminated? Are you not, by making such a suggestion, inviting them to do something about it? And do you not accept that a fringe among them will pick up arms and try to do the job themselves? As a, as a masochist myself, I had a few altercations with his, uh, uh, twi- with his followers on Twitter uh, just after the Christchurch uh, massacre. And I can tell you that they were pretty happy. I mean, at best, they would claim that the Muslims have invited the massacre. So we are all collectively responsible for that killing. And at worst, they would say it's well-deserved. So I think that there are genocidal impulses in this group that we are talking about that hasn't quite been uh, looked into. And I think that the uh, sort of like the, the, the far right platforms that exist, such as Gab and 4chan and 8chan and, and, and so on, 
are a good place to, to, to start to get to the bottom of this. But certainly, it does have a history, as I said earlier in Jean Raspail. You are a hero if you pick up your weapons and you exterminate them. Uh, so I don't think that the idea of genocide, of white genocide, and its possible violent denouement can be completely uh, uh, dissociated. Now, you, some years ago, the Indian historian Partha Chatterjee wrote a book about nationalism in the global south, where he characterized uh, nationalist movements in formerly uh, colonized countries as following a what he called a derivative discourse. Um, it occurs to me that, that, that in some ways, the great replacement theory is itself a, a derivative discourse because it, it deploys a lot of the tropes of, of anti, anti-colonial discourse about settler colonialism. I mean, at its, at its core is, is the idea that, that Europeans are going to be colonized or counter-colonized, and hence perhaps the, also the justification for violence against the, you know, the indigenous colonizer. So I, you know, I wondered: Do you think that that underneath this uh, language of the Great Replacement, there is an awareness of what the West has done to the rest, uh, even even perhaps a, a guilt or at least a fear of revenge? I think you're 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 absolutely right. And historically, this can be observed in some of the texts and political discourses produced by a very specific French group in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. I'm talking about the uh, European settlers, Algerian settlers, who were quote-unquote repatriated into France. One million of them in the uh, In, in the 1962. Aftermath, exactly, in 1962. After the right. uh, uh, Algerian in independence. I think that a section of this population was quite disturbed by the arrival en masse of North Africans, uh, particularly Algerians, in France in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, And I think that the only way some of them could make sense of this arrival was by interpreting it in the light of their own experience. You know, we went there to settle and colonize. Therefore, they must be coming to settle here and to colonize here. That's why some of the very first instantiations of the idea of Islamization is to be found in the discourse of, for instance, Jean-Marie Le Pen, founder of the Front National or National Front, who in this period essentially catered to to that population and to their uh, fears and anxieties. Jean-Marie Le Pen Pen is is really a a pioneer of the Islamization discourse. Right. Jean-Marie Le Pen was a a former paratrooper who uh, tortured in Algeria, and, and certainly he deserves some of the credit for, for spreading these ideas. But one could, one could also find echoes of this idea in, of, of, of replacement uh, in a conversation that, uh, that Charles de Gaulle is said to have had with uh, his friend Alain Perfitte in 1959, when he said that uh, he would have to eventually withdraw from Algeria because otherwise his town, uh, Colombe-les-Deux-Églises, would become Colombe-les-Deux-Mosquées, and it would be you know, flooded by Muslims. Yes, absolutely. So I think that these ideas were around already there in what I tend to call a niche sort of like population, internationally speaking. Uh, but now with Renaud Camus and with all the things that we discussed earlier, the sort of like the internationalization of these ideas and the echo chambers and so on, we realized just how important and, and Im- impactful the uh, repertoire of ideas of this uh, small group has become uh, today. But in my view, Islamization theories did not really take off before 9-11. And the reason for my belief is that uh, previous to, to, to 9-11, Muslims were generally represented in literature and even in politics to some extent as inept, though cruel. I think Jack Shaheen has uh, uh, done a very comprehensive work on the representation of Arabs and Muslims in Hollywood. They are cruel, but they are inept. You know, they can't, they can't just get their act together. Remember that scene when uh, Indiana Jones is uh, somewhere in Egypt, I think, and there's a chap sort of like uh, juggling with his swords, and then Indiana Jones just takes his gun and shoots him. There's this, this, this idea of ineptitude which lingers uh, even after the Iranian Revolution, even after the 1982 uh, bombing in uh, Beirut. 
However, 9-11 transforms that perception of ineptitude. Not only are they cruel, but hang on a second, they can do harm. And this is the necessary sort of like the necessary, the fertile ground for genuine conspiracy theories to emerge about the uh, subterraneous actions of this racialized population, i.e. the Muslims and their Western allies, be it the left, the internationalists, be it Davos, uh, uh, etc., etc., which is something that you find in Batior, uh, for instance, where she accuses essentially the European institutions. You know, remember that European institutions are supranational. It's their anathema to sort of like nationalists. So the European institutions are in bed with uh, uh, Arab uh, governments to bring in as many Muslim uh, immigrants as possible in order to sort of like upset the demographic balance of Europe and in one generation or less uh, uh, impose the Sharia to all of us. You know, in a profile of, of Renaud Camus, uh, the writer uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams remarked that in recent decades, Camus has been associated less with with erotica than with the idea of reverse colonization by black and brown people. Um, and yet there, there's always been a sexual element in the Great Replacement Theory. Some of its adherents, like, like Anders Breivik, have been driven by feelings of sexual inadequacy and rivalry with uh, non-white immigrants. The idea of, uh, of replacement also evokes biological replacement as well as rape and sexual conquest. Um, uh, Sindra, in your book, um, you quote uh, a, a leading uh, Norwegian uh, uh, theorist, uh, Islamophobic theorist, Hans Rustad, as saying that Muslim men were using sex as a form of warfare and inflicting a slow castration on Western men. Why, why, is, why is this sexual dimension so present in Great Replacement Theory? Well, I mean, it... It, it comes coupled with uh, the idea of a certain form of biopolitics. So majority uh, status is dependent on uh, biological reproduction and social reproduction of that, you know, historical white, white dominance. And the idea about racialized populations and, and not the least about Muslims within right-wing extremist uh, and far-right circles is that whilst European men have become emasculated, infertile, impotent in all respects, racialized uh, minority men are sexualized, they're, they're, they're fertile, and they re reproduce at, at uh, you know, higher levels. So facts on reproduction uh, in Western societies uh, seem to matter uh, precious little. I mean, we know that uh, Muslim immigrants, for example, over time uh, tend to reach fertility levels quite similar to you know, European populations. But uh, this is certainly a strong element. And, and part of the appeal here, I think, is the, the appeal of a certain idea I mean, I mean, there's al almost an obsession with the idea of uh, the potent, potent and, and virile uh, Muslim male in, in, in this case. Yeah, I think those demographic anxieties that have, we've been talking about are deeply entangled with uh, the sexualization of the other, of the Muslim other, uh, particularly. And we have lots of historical precedents for that. Um, French Orientalism in the, in, the, in the days of French Algeria. French Orientalists very often described native Muslim males as sexually deviant individuals uh, whose sexuality was counter-nature because of the use of masturbation and of sodomy and so on and so forth. And when you have the first waves of uh, Algerian migrants uh, male Muslim native Algerian migrants into metropolitan France in the very early days of the 20th century, the media essentially describes them as a sexual threat to the purity of uh, French females, therefore the nation itself. So, you know, Orientalism and Islamophobia are highly gendered in, 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 in many ways. And I think that those populations have always been somehow portrayed as oversexed so, so, so the, the, the recurrence of these themes are not entirely 
uh, surprising. Although, right. and it's certainly and it's and it's certainly true of anti-black racism uh, as well. You know, as as you know, as Franz Fanon put it, you know, in the white racist imagination, the black male r- represents the biological. But you know, the the question that I would have for both of you before we close out is, um, even if these ideas are deeply rooted in the uh, Western uh, imaginary, in the Western political unconscious, why do you think they have taken on such force in the last decade or so? What accounts for the, the power and intensity of these ideas? As you both said, these are now mainstream. These are not just on the fringe right. To some extent, they've also colonized uh, liberalism as well, um, in, in, in places like, uh, like France. Um, I mean, to some extent, even uh, Macron flirted with, you know, ideas about, uh, you know, the danger of Islamo-leftism in the universities and so forth. So this, I think, is the hard question. I mean, we can talk, you and I, we, the, the three of us can talk all day about the 19th century and et cetera. Why now? Some, something is new here. I mean, you know, there's demographic anxiety has been there for a long time. What's going on? Is it, is it some kind of crisis of citizenship? Is it, the, is, it, um, is it the refugee crisis? Is it economic anxiety? I mean, large swaths of the population, the political establishment, have been gripped with, by this idea. I think all of the things that you mentioned play a role. These are, these are very complex historical uh, processes. And clearly, social media have played a role in magnifying and making much more readily available a racist conspiracy theory, for instance. You know, in the back in the 1990s, uh, you had to work hard to find a conspiracy theory. You had to get a subscription to a specialized magazine or get access to specialized literature like David Icke and so on. And you would have to spend money and time traveling to a conspiracy theory congress of some sort in order to come across like-minded people. Whereas today, there are millions of those people in your pocket anytime, you know, available for a chat or available to act as echo chambers. I don't think that social media explains conspiracy theories, but clearly there is a new dynamic in the uh, dissemination and availability of uh, conspiracy theories. And also because the algorithms essentially shelter you from any point of view that would be would be different. You know, once Twitter and Facebook have worked out that you can that kind of stuff, they're going to bombard you with that kind of stuff and nothing else. So I think that social media have uh, obviously played a very, very uh, uh, negative role in all of this. This is not a new uh, conversation. But I think that the traditional media have also played a role. Uh, in France, for instance, there is a chap called Vincent Bolloré, who is this very devout uh, a billionaire, Catholic billionaire, who carries pictures of saints on himself and uh, confesses twice a week, and who has been one of the main promoters of the ideas of Eric Zemmour and Renaud Camus in the mainstream media, over which he has an outsized control as some sort of, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch on steroids, uh, uh, if you want to call it so. But the politicians themselves have uh, a responsibility to bear. And then again, to talk of uh, France, which is the case I know uh, best. In my view, the far right has won the battle 20 years ago. Uh, It was not the victory that um, Jean-Marie Le Pen had in mind because uh, the Front National or the Rassemblement National never took over the Elysee Palace in Paris. The president has never been from those parties, but the ideas have won. Certainly, I would argue, since Sarkozy, the ideas of the far right are right at the center. And you are absolutely right. They have even uh, infected Macron and uh, certainly his first government that would sort of like, you know, claim that the uh, the universities have been taken over by Islamo-Gauchis, which is that once again, uh, notes a sort of alliance between a racialized minority and our sort of like fifth columnists, our own, you know, critical race theorists and anti-racists and so on. So it's a very complex process, but it has taken place. And uh, I don't 
really, I mean, I'm a born pessimist uh, personally. I don't really see how it's it could end or be stopped. I think that we've lost a battle for a generation at least. Uh, I'm I'm sad to say. <laughs> so Reza, we we have pessimism of the intellect from you. Uh, Sindra, can you give us a little <laughs> optimism of the will? Or are you going to agree with uh, Reza here? So I'm I'm in charge of the uh, the optimism of 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 the will uh, in 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 this context. Then, well, is there I, a way is there a way for us to con to confront and challenge this? Well, it depends on you know uh, which societies we're talking about. I think I think Reza might be correct in assuming that it's gone too far in in into the mainstream in in, in a number of societies. Uh, one can think of, of of France. One could think of the USA in this context. Northern Europe, the part that I know best, perhaps, is, is slightly better off, I think, right? Because it, these kind of ideas, they do not appear to have quite the same traction uh, that they had. And, and part of the reason for that is precisely because in the country where I'm based, in Norway, we have seen the little consequences of of, of this and to dramatic effect. And, and so that, I, I think, uh, has put a break on, on, on some of these developments and also entailed a greater level of willingness on the part of, of the population at large to confront you know, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and, and so forth. When it comes to you know, the explanatory factors, I, I would agree with Reza that this is a multifaceted phenomenon. I, I would perhaps also underline the fact that throughout the world, uh, people are living in times of accelerated change. Uh, we are, uh, in, in many respects, living in a world that confirms the most dystopian uh, visions about humanity at large, right? We have uh, a profound ecological crisis on our hands with there, there, there seemingly being little that political, mainstream political elites are able to do with it. And we have all, all kinds of social and, and demographic changes, which makes these uh, narratives attractive and, and will continue to make them attractive for a lot of, of people. And, and so the, the hope, in, in my view, if, if I were to say something about where I place my own hope, uh, I, I think there is a, a, a great deal of creative and original thinking about our common and shared uh, human challenges to be found in the Black Atlantic tradition, in the what uh, MSSR once referred to as the planetary humanism made to the measure of the world. Uh, thinkers like Paul Gilroy, uh, Achille Mbembe, MSSR, Franz Fanon, and the best one could do as an intellectual is to, but also Sylvia Winter, to, to return to those. Uh... Return to those sources and to hope, as Aimé Césaire famously put it, that there will be a place for everyone at the rendezvous of victory. Uh, Sindra and Reza, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the LRB podcast. Thank you. Thank you.